All right, well, we are about to begin the halfway point of our Forerunners of the Faith curriculum, Lesson 6 in the Patristic Era of Church History. As many of you guys know, we've been in the Patristic Era really for... Basically eight, nine months now. I mean, we've been in it for a really long time. And this is actually the last chapter in that particular period of church history. So um, we're going to, Lord willing, be able to start a new section, which is the medieval era of church history, in the next few weeks. But we're ending the patristic era with a bang. Don't think for a second that we're just going to coast into the medieval era of church history without landing on some really significant figures and issues. Because if, if we've studied anything big up to this point... This is equally as big as anything that we've discussed because we're going to be talking about today and the next probably week or so, we're going to be discussing arguably the most influential theologian in the history of the church outside of the Apostle Paul. Many of you guys have heard his name before or maybe even read excerpts of his work. For uh, If you're in college English, for example, and a lot of college English classes require reading of him guy by the name of Augustine. How many of y'all have heard of Augustine before? Show of hands. Yeah, even if you've never read him, you've probably heard about him because he's one of the greatest minds in the history of the Western world. And in terms of Christianity, he's arguably the most significant theologian other than um, the Apostle Paul and the other apostles as well. So looking forward to diving into some of his thought, some of the issues that he addressed during his um, ministry, and I'm also looking forward to learning a little bit about his life. You're going to hear a little bit about his biography today at the beginning of the lesson before we begin looking at his thought and how it correlates to the Word of God. So with that in mind, by way of introduction, I'm going to open this up with a word of prayer. But if you have your workbook and you're open to Lesson 6, you'll see that there is a key passage that we're going to read as well after I pray. And I will need somebody to volunteer to read that for us after we open up in a word of prayer. So can I get a volunteer to read that passage from John's Gospel? Hannah? Man, you never read. I'm so grateful that you read for us. Yeah, it's good. It's good. I like trying new things too. All right, well, let's pray. And then Hannah will read our key passage. Father, what a joy it is to come together on Palm Sunday and to... Just meditate on your providence, how you have orchestrated every aspect of human history to accomplish your purpose, to ultimately bring glory to your great name, and then penultimately to redeem a people for yourself, a treasured possession that you could lavish your love upon for all of eternity future, and that that people might enjoy rich fellowship with one another and the holy angels for all eternity. And we thank you, Father, that for those of us here this morning who've turned away from our sins in repentance and received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we know that we have eternal life and that we know you as a adopted son or daughter in Christ. I pray for anybody here or listening to this recording that does not know you, that God, you would give them eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to submit to the truths of the gospel. Father, I pray that they would come to the realization that only in you can we find eternal satisfaction and forgiveness of sins and life everlasting? As Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. 
as we turn to study Augustine today and possibly over the next week, depending on how long it takes to get through this section. My prayer, Father, is that you would help us to learn mighty, eternal, and spiritual truths from from his life, from his ministry. May we learn from his mistakes as well, God. May we not ever exalt the sinner. May we recognize your work in and through the sinner, Father. But may we never exalt them to the level that is reserved for you, your Son, and your Holy Spirit alone. And as we leave this time of study, Father, we pray you would prepare our hearts to worship you in the context of our corporate worship. We pray, Father, you would also equip us and empower us by your Spirit to leave this place and go out into this world as your ambassadors, as your salt and light, as a city set upon a hill for your renown and for the good of those who have yet to call upon the name of Christ. We pray to that end in his name, for his glory, and for our eternal good in him. Amen. All right. John 1, 14 to 17. Hannah, take that away for us, please. So as I'm sure you picked up by reading that passage, the title of this section or this chapter in Forerunners of the Faith is Grace and Truth. And as the Apostle John testifies under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Christ was full of grace and truth. That was the embodiment. That was the personification of his work in the incarnation, specifically in his earthly ministry. So as we prepare to begin, with that in mind, um, as we prepare to begin today's lesson, I just want to let you all know at the outset that I am going to be doing a little bit of reading just to give you a biographical sketch of Augustine. As we've talked about many times, before we just dive into a particular controversy or a particular figure, you've got to know something of the context in which that figure or that controversy was situated, right? If you don't know the context, if you don't know the historical background, it's not going to make a whole lot of sense to you, or it might not make as much sense as it could make, because we're all creatures of a context, and nothing ever happens in human history in a vacuum. So Augustine, like us, was part of a context. He had a past. He had um, he had a life that, when understood broadly, it's going to make a little bit better sense of who he was and why he was so significant. So let me read a little bit out of my teacher's guide just to give you a big picture overview of Augustine. If you have a pen, if you have something to write on, whether it be a workbook or uh, this handout that I've given to each of you when you walked in, be good to take a few notes. If you have any questions, you'll have an opportunity to ask those questions. But let me read uh, just a little bit here about the introduction to this section and a little bit about Augustine as well. And then we're going to dive into his thought and to some of the significant high points of his life, okay? So introduction. Dr. Busnitz, who developed this curriculum, writes the following. He says, this lesson, this section of Forerunners of the Faith will focus on two key tenets of the Christian faith, the grace of the gospel and the truth of God's word. As the passage above demonstrates, both grace and truth were fully realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
in order to highlight these themes, we're going to consider the impact of two influential Christian leaders who lived in the late 4th and early 5th century. One was primarily known as a theologian, the other primarily known as a preacher. The first figure, the theologian, is that of Augustine of Hippo, and the preacher, who we'll look at in a few weeks from now, Lord willing, is known by the name John and his nickname, Chrysostom, which literally meant golden mouth. So we'll learn about golden mouth John uh, in a few weeks, Lord willing. But um, Augustine today, I mentioned by way of introduction earlier that Augustine is arguably the most significant and the most brilliant theologian to ever live outside of the apostolic era. He had the greatest impact on the Protestant Reformation as well in regards to his understanding of the doctrine of salvation. Um, so that's a brief overview from Dr. Buznitz's excerpt here in my teacher's guide. Let's look now at the biography, brief biography of Augustine. Get you guys acquainted with this patristic giant. Augustine lived from the year 354 A.D. to the year 430 A.D. He was born Aurelius Augustinius, and his name shortened as Augustine, as he's known today. He was born in North Africa, not far from modern-day Algeria, along the Mediterranean coast. His father was an unbeliever. He also had siblings who were non-believers as well. But his mother, Monica, was a Christian. She was faithful to teach her son about the Bible and the Christian faith, but she was most notably known for her commitment to praying for Augustine's salvation. And she prayed and she prayed and she prayed for years while her son lived in a lifestyle of debauchery, a lifestyle of false religion, pagan religion. She remained faithful to witnessing to her son, to praying for her son, and as we know, eventually, in the fullness of time, at God's appointment, Augustine came to saving faith. But more on that in just a few moments. Business notes here by way of biography that in his confessions, Augustine explains how God saved him. In chapter 1, right at the beginning, if you ever take a college humanities or literature class to, of some capacity, um, I don't want to say it's in every single English class at uh, whatever college you may go to, but a lot of even public, secular universities or um, junior colleges, community colleges, they will actually look at this part of the confessions particularly because nobody can deny that Augustine was a man of great prose. He was gifted as a writer. He was very eloquent as a speaker. And at the beginning of his confessions... He writes these words, one of the most famous phrases you'll find in any ancient literature source. He writes, Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you, O Lord. Praying to God, explaining His salvation, he says that our hearts as sinners, they're restless, they're empty, they're, they are without fullness of satisfaction and joy until ultimately they rest in the Creator. And Buznitz notes that the restlessness in Augustine's unredeemed heart is what compelled him to chase after the pleasures of the world. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, or if you're listening to this lesson and you don't know Christ, that is you right now. You are looking at anything in this world, any pleasure, any relationship, any source of identity, 
that can give you satisfaction and purpose and meaning and fulfillment. And my friend, if that is all you seek after as your ultimate goal, then you're going to be empty. You're going to be restless. And you're ultimately not going to have your sins forgiven, which is even greater issue than just your feeling of restlessness. Um, So my exhortation to you is that of what we hear in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Jesus spoke to this issue of the human heart being restless. Matthew 11, 28 to 30. This is a free invitation to you here this morning or listening to the recording. If you feel restless, if you feel burdened, if you feel like you are lacking in purpose and satisfaction, contentment, these words are for you. Christ says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am humble in heart. And if you do that, you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, born of a virgin who lived a perfect life without sin, died on the cross bearing God's wrath in the place of every person who would ever believe, and being resurrected three days after being put to death via crucifixion, and ascended to the right hand of God in heaven after appearing to more than 500 witnesses, He, that man, that God-man, that Lord, that King, that Savior, He will give you the rest that you long for if you would receive Him as the Lord of your life by faith. Augustine came to know that personally later on, but as I mentioned before that aside, he lived a lifestyle of utter debauchery. He, he sought after the pleasures of this world for a significant portion of his life, specifically in his years of adolescence and going into his early 20s. Busnitz notes that uh, at the age of 16, he left uh, his household to begin studying as an academician, particularly in the field of rhetoric. The, the study of rhetoric is just the discipline of, of speaking, how to, how to speak eloquently, how to speak in such a way to captivate an audience. That was a big deal back then. In fact, in Augustine's day, even going back to the days of the apostles, Paul alludes to this in the early part of 1 Corinthians. But people would go to Colosseums or they would go to these places where they would just sit and listen to guys speak. And they would speak in Latin or in Greek, which is different to us, but back in those days, and if you know anything about the Latin and Greek language, If you're gifted in rhetoric, you can do play on words really well, and you can captivate an audience. It was like watching a sport. People would just sit back and say, wow, that person just sounds beautiful. He has a mastery of the the language of Latin or Greek or whatever that was being spoken, and he has an ability to engage an audience. So Augustine was impressed by that. He wanted to be a gifted orator. and he wanted to learn how to captivate an audience. So he leaves at the age of 16, to begin studying and and studying other topics as well uh, to an academic end. But at the age of 17, he begins to dabble in sexual promiscuity. Uh, He begins a 15-year romantic relationship with a girl that he never wound up marrying. They wound up having a son together who died at at a young age. I think he was, I think his son was 
in his early teenage years. I forget the exact age, but he has a son out of wedlock. He begins a, um, an unbiblical relationship with this woman uh, for a really long time. While he's doing this, he begins to dabble in a false religion known as uh, Manichaeism. It's a heresy that attempts to combine Christianity and an Eastern religion known as Zoroastrianism. Uh, it's, a, it's a religion that we don't have a whole lot of time to get into, and frankly, I'm not an expert on the religion of uh, Zoroastrianism or Manichaeism. So uh, if you're interested in that, go and look up those false religions. Um, probably will be a real page-turner to do so. But in any case, moving forward... Augustine, while he's in Carthage, so fast forward basically 15 years. So he's now, he's now in his early 30s. He's in his early 30s. He is dabbling in false religion. He eventually stops studying Manichaeism to embark upon a study of Neoplatonism, the study of Plato, but modified a little bit by this time in the early 5th century. And he's still not saved He's a gifted um, order. He studied the uh, different languages you could study at this point. He's obviously very brilliant and intellectually, though he's dabbling in false religion. He's studied a lot of philosophy at this point. But he's still lost. He's still empty. And in his early 30s, he meets a man by the name of Ambrose, who's a famous preacher in Milan. And while he's there to hear Ambrose speak, because he hears that Ambrose is this gifted speaker, uh, and, and Augustine and other people were very fascinated by people who had a mastery of speaking, a mastery of captivating a human audience with words, Augustine actually preaches a sermon that convicts Augustine of his sin. So Augustine goes to hear this brilliant speaker, and while he went for entertainment... He winds up getting convicted of his sin, and for the first time, he, he comes into contact with biblical Christianity, namely the gospel message. And it was shortly after that that Augustine is outside. This is, we don't know exactly when, but shortly after hearing Ambrose preach, it's reported that Augustine was sitting outside one day under a tree, and he hears some children nearby playing a game. And one of the kids as part of the game, was repeating a phrase over and over and over again. And the phrase was tole lege, take up and read, take up and read, take up and read, tole lege, tole lege, tole lege. So Augustine, he hears that, and for reasons known only to God, truly, he goes to, basically in those days, he goes to the stash of, of scrolls and codices where in those days the Bible would have been Put together as much as they would have had at that period of time. Probably would have had a whole Bible um, at this period, the early 5th century, because the canon of Scripture was uh, solidified. But in any case, he goes where, where the Scriptures are at, and he just, it'd be like you taking a Bible off the shelf, opening it up to wherever the page is turned to, and putting your finger down on the page. And the verses that Augustine stumbled on are in your workbooks. Somebody read those out loud. This is the verse where, again, open the Bible up to whatever page it comes on, and you just put your finger down. Read those text. Uh, read those verses for us from the text, Ellie, please.
Very good. So, so think about Augustine here, okay? He's been with a woman for half of his life. They're not married. They had a son together who died. Before this woman, it's reported that Augustine would, would just go out and, and, and chase after um, you know, sexual promiscuity, drunkenness, all sorts of different just pagan lifestyle practices that we even see to this day, right? You look at social media, you look on TV, this stuff is celebrated. Go out, sleep around, get drunk, get high, party, eat, drink, for tomorrow we perish. That stuff, that's going to give you satisfaction. That's fun. It's cool. Augustine did that for, arguably, I don't know if he was doing that, obviously, as a child, but let's just say from his teen years, say from the age of 13, 15, somewhere in there, to the time he's in his early 30s. He's done this for 15, 16 years. He's done it nonstop. And his heart's restless. And then all of a sudden, in God's providence, he just opens up a Bible, points his finger on the verse that it uh, comes open to, and it's an autobiography of Augustine's life. And it's Paul, in Romans 13, exhorting the Romans, hey, don't have a lifestyle defined by these things. And Augustine's reading that and is like, this is me. And at that moment, Augustine's converted. He believes the gospel. He trusts Christ as his Lord and Savior. He repents from his lifestyle. He winds up abandoning his mistress to follow after Christ for the rest of his life. Um, Buznitz notes that he was ordained roughly seven years later in the year 391 by the church in modern-day Algeria, Hippo. Uh, is the name. That's why you hear Augustine of Hippo. That's the region that he was ordained in and where he served. Um, in 395, he was appointed to serve as co-bishop, which in those days, the bishop was the highest role in the church, like the senior pastor today. So he served as a bishop for basically 35 years. So he gets ordained uh, in 391 and 395. He's a bishop, and now he's in a significant role for about 35 years until he dies in 430. And as Buznitz notes, um, Augustine would write some of the most important theological works in the history of the church. The two most famous is his masterful work on the Trinity. If you ever want to read something and just have your mind blown, read it. I've read it. It took me almost a year to work through it. It is dense. It's rich. It's remarkable that a human being has the intellect that he had. Um, and then his, his work, The City of God, continues to be read as well, um, both at popular level and at um, academic level. And, the, and the, the City of God basically was written for the purpose of addressing, hey, why is God allowing the Roman Empire to fall? Like we were this, we were this, this um, elite political powerhouse for so long, and now we're having all these issues. And Augustine wrote that to say, hey, if you're a Christian, your citizenship is in heaven. Though we should be good stewards in our um, in the place that we live, we should care about politics and we should try to do our best to promote Christian values within the domain in which we live. Our hope is not in politics. Our hope is not in government. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in the city of God to which we belong to if we're Christians. So that's an overview of Augustine. And you've probably noticed by now in your workbook, if you brought it today, there is a box with some discussion it says this, Augustine's conversion story is admittedly dramatic. The reality is that every testimony of God's grace is amazing. With that in mind, how would you explain the way God rescued you from sin 
and drew you to himself. Now, I'm not asking for us to get into testimonies or anything like that if you don't feel comfortable. I think a better way of addressing this question would be twofold. One, what do you think of Augustine's testimony? What do you think of that that, um, example of God plucking somebody out of sin despite being in it for years? And number two, um, does everybody's testimony have to look like that? for it to be a valid testimony. I think those are good questions. Let's start with the first one. What is your takeaway? It's a flyover. We missed a lot of details probably, um, but for y'all who've probably never really engaged with Augustine, it probably still was a lot for you to consider just by way of introduction. But hearing that, hearing about Augustine's life, what do you think about his testimony? forget i looked up the guy he's like and so the, so what she's referring to is in the link in the email that i send you guys is a link that takes you to lectures that correspond to the material that uh, dr Buznitz, who put this together um teaches on and that comes from some random patristic theologian um who i'd never even heard of before i had heard that lesson but that's profound nobody's so bad to not be able to merit or, or to uh, benefit from the gospel, that it would not apply to them. Nobody's so good that they deserve the gospel. So it takes self-righteousness out of the equation, but it also allows you to recognize that the gospel's for everybody. So you're not deserving of the gospel, but you also don't think that the gospel's too good for you. You can, you can benefit from it. It's for any sinner who's willing to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That's the promise there. It's good feedback, Lisa. What about the testimony? Because many of you guys have grown up in Christian homes. Um, For some of y'all, there's never been a day in which you didn't believe. Lisa and I kind of talked about that before we got started this morning. And like for my wife, for example, she grew up in a Christian home. Um, She went to one of the best churches you can go to, like, like literally in like America, like like their pastor's known for being a great preacher and he speaks at the Shepherds Conference and like she 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 knew the truth like from the time she could walk and first speak. And she doesn't remember a time when she didn't believe. She's like, How do I know that I'm a Christian? And she's had to you know, her dad counseled her and said, Well, you know, you, you you've had the head knowledge for a long time and if you've trusted in Jesus Christ truly, it's not just head knowledge. Your lifestyle will look like you have done so. And you'll love him from the heart. It will be a genuine love. It won't just be, Christianity won't be a set of rules or an obligation. It'll be something that is your faith. And um, God saves people like that just as much as he saves people like Augustine. So um, I kind of answered the question for you guys. You don't need a testimony like Augustine to be a believer. God saves whom he pleases and how he pleases. For some, it's all for his glory. And it's all for your testimony 
to be shared for a particular purpose, and it's all for you to be able to um, worship God and testify on behalf of God in a way that He sees fit. For some people, God wants to save them at a very young age, and God has a purpose for doing that so that person can walk alongside other people who grew up knowing the truth and can be an example of, hey, how, how do you make Christianity your own faith? How do you walk with Christ and not just do it because your parents told you to do it? That can be a good resource. Like My wife can be a good resource for people like that who's kind of wrestling with that dynamic. Whereas me, although I wasn't as crazy as Augustine was as an unbeliever, I lived a pretty you know, typical secular life up through the age of 17. I was a you know, popular kid in school. I played baseball and everything. And um, I can relate to people who, who have that struggle. And I'm able to, um, to have a unique testimony to, for, for the sake of God's purposes being accomplished, I'm able to go and come alongside people who, who have a similar background and say, hey, you know, I can relate to what you're going through. But the gospel did this for my life, and it can do that for you as well. And each of you have that. Whatever your story, whatever your background, whatever your testimony looks like, God has orchestrated it for a reason. Um, so don't be discouraged if you don't have a big dramatic story like Augustine or other people have. You're just as saved through faith in Jesus Christ as Augustine or anybody else. That's a promise. Any questions on Augustine's life? before we look at some of his theology. And this is the good stuff. I wish we could have just jumped right into the good stuff, but we can't. we got to go through the history first. Very good. Well, letter A, Augustine and Grace. Augustine and Grace. If you have your workbook, follow along here because there's a blank right off the bat. It says, Augustine has been called the doctor of grace because of his emphasis on God's grace and salvation. So blank one, the doctor of grace. And Buznitz notes that this theme of grace was especially prominent in Augustine's life and ministry because he had to deal with a false teacher by the name of Pelagius. Okay, And here's what we've noted. If you've been coming for any period of time to our Sunday school classes... Christian doctrine is always sharpened and solidified in controversy. God uses controversy to help his people become more resolute in what they believe and why. So again, controversy is never fun. We should never want controversy. We should never try to cultivate controversy. But when it comes, and it will come, it's in those moments when God's people are able to go to His Word and be more, be, be more aware of what they believe and be more effective in defending what they believe and sharing what they believe. It's exactly what we have, with, what we have here with Augustine. It's exactly what happened with him. Pelagius taught that people are born morally neutral, that they were capable of pursuing God and obtaining salvation through their own Volition, that is, their own, quote-unquote, free will. Question for group discussion now. Very important question. How many of you have heard any of the following sayings at some point in your life? Maybe at public school. Maybe from Sunday school teachers you've had in the past. Maybe from loved ones. Maybe from the internet. I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure you've all heard one of these sayings. 
Man is born innocent. Show of hands. You see a baby. That baby is born innocent. That's just an innocent little baby. Okay? I've heard that before growing up. Man is basically good, but he is corrupted by his environment. I've heard that one before. Yeah? About this. Man has absolute free will to do whatever he wants. Heard that one before? Yep. What if I told you that each of those three thoughts, as far as we can know from the annals of human history, find their roots in Pelagius, a condemned heretic in the early 5th century? What would you all say about that? Isn't it funny that uh, the old saying, there's nothing new under the sun, just repackaged and rebranded heresy? Heresy just, it just circulates and it's recycled and it's repackaged and it's regurgitated. Each of those three statements are not true. They are unbiblical. They are not Christian. Man is not innocent. He is conceived in iniquity. Psalm 51.5, Romans 3.9-20. Man is not basically good, but merely corrupted by his environment. Number one, we just looked at some text. Psalm 51.5, we'll read that in a minute. Romans 3.9-20. Ephesians 2.1-3. We can go on and on and on. So he's not good, but merely corrupted by his environment. For one, he's got a heart issue. Number two, if it really was a matter of having the right environment, wouldn't you think there'd be an environment out there that was uncorrupted that we could go to and say, yep, there's the uncorrupted environment. Those people were never corrupted. It doesn't exist. Number three, man has absolute free will to do whatever he desires. Well, we know that's not true. Um... Romans 8, 7, and 8. Um, what Jesus said, the one who sins is enslaved to sin. He's in bondage to sin. Um, that's in John 8. We'll look, let's look at some text to verify all this before we move further. Let's just look at the text I cited. Somebody pull up Psalm 51.5. Hannah. Somebody pull up um, Ephesians 2, 1-3. Emma. Somebody pull up... Um, Romans 8, 7, and 8, Michael. I'll take Romans 3, 9 to 20. And then um, let me look up the passage in John real quick. It's John 8. I think it's John. It's around John 8, 44. I could be off a few verses. Um, John 8, 34. I need to end it with a 4. So, yes, I take John 8, 34. Thank you, buddy. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to war on Pelagius this morning. We're going to go to war on false doctrine. A frontal assault, just like Augustine. We're going to refute every one of these false notions from the Word of God. And then we're going to think biblically about those. Okay. So first false notion, man is born innocent. Read it, uh, Hannah, Psalm 51.5. Very good. And let me build on that. Romans 3, 9 and following. Paul writes, What then? Are we better than they? Referring to the Jews in comparison to Gentiles. He says, Not at all. We're not Jews aren't any better than non-Jews. We've already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin as it is written. And he's quoting from the Old Testament here. So this is not just Paul's take in a vacuum. He's building the case from Old Testament Scripture. There's none righteous... Not even one. 
There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be accountable to God. Because by the works of the flesh, no flesh, uh, excuse me, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So, so Paul in that text pretty much just refutes everything uh, that we were asking here. Man is innocent, basically good, absolute free will. No, 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 says Paul to each of those um, teachings espoused by Pelagius. Okay, um, who's going to read the Ephesians 2, 1 to 3? Emma, take that. Very good. So that that's who you were. And if you went to the T-Bar-M retreat in the fall of 2020, we spent three, basically, hour and a half to two hour long lessons going through Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. Um, you and I, in our natural state, contra Pelagius, we are spiritually dead. We're under the wrath of God. Children of wrath, as Paul says in verse 3. We did everything to flee from God. Just like Augustine. We fleed from God. We pursued the course of this world. We did anything but choose God. And we did so willingly. We had no ability in and of ourselves to choose God, as we're going to read from Romans 8, 7, 8. We had no ability to freely choose God because of our enslavement to sin. But we freely chose everything but God. Every desire of the flesh, every lust of the eyes, the pride of life, we sought it out with every fiber of our being. That is who, and if you're an unbeliever here this morning, whether in person or listening, that's who you are right now. You're enslaved to sin. You are under God's wrath. And unless you be born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Michael, take Romans 8, 7, and 8 for us. Very powerful text, again, from the Apostle Paul. Very good. So did you get that? The mind, the one in the flesh, the unbeliever, okay, does not subject itself to the law of God. If, you're, if you are an unbeliever, you don't care about God's law, you're not even able to do so, Paul says. And you want to try to please God through your own good works, unbeliever? You want to espouse a works righteousness system of salvation? Well, verse 8, you can't please God. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You're not going to be able to please God through your own good works. You don't have the ability to, for one, you're, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And number two, um, 
You can't do it without faith. So not only can you not do so by virtue of your sinful nature, but if you lack faith, it doesn't even matter what good works you could even offer to God to be saved. So I read that passage from our Lord in John 8, 34. Jesus answered to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Look at that. Everyone who commits sin commits sin that's in the present active tense. It's an ongoing pattern. If you are committing sin as the overarching pattern of your life without repentance, you're enslaved to sin. That's the non-believer's life. So we just read from so many of those texts we just considered together. The unbeliever is a slave to sin. So is man born innocent? Let's go back through Pelagius. This is Pelagius' thought. This is the heretic's thought. Okay? This is the heresy. This is the false teaching you hear at school, that you see on the internet, that you see on uh, social media, that you might even hear from misinformed Christians. This is false that we're going... This is falsehood. This is uh, incorrect claims that we're going to work through together now. Man is born innocent. Is he born innocent? No. What is he born as? He's born as a sinner. He, he is born as a rebel to God. He is fleeing from God. He's spiritually dead. Okay, that's man in his natural state. Number two, man is basically good, but is merely corrupted by his environment. Is man simply a byproduct of bad circumstances? No. Well, where does it come from? What's the problem with man? Is it an external problem? What is it? Internal problem, right? Right? Christ said, out of the overflow of the mouth speaks the heart. It's a heart issue. Everything. Sin. Temptation. um, The inability to pursue God or to seek after God. Fleeing from God. It all comes from a heart that is not born again. A heart that is unregenerate. A heart that is corrupted with sin. Number three, man has absolute free will to do whatever he desires. Okay, now let me qualify that real quick. We do have free will to choose whatever we desire to do so. The key, though, is if you're not a believer, you'll never desire to pursue God. That's the key. Pelagius taught that man had free will to choose God willingly in and of himself without any kind of divine intervention. And Scripture says, no, you're dead in sin. God must first intervene. He must first cause your heart to be transformed from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. He has to replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh, and then you respond to that work of divine grace with faith. Um, So, those are the heresies espoused by Pelagius that Augustine had to deal with. And here's what Augustine said in response. Buznitz notes that Augustine insisted that people enter this world with a sinful nature, they are spiritually dead in their sins, and they are therefore unable to earn God's favor through their own efforts. Rather, God must draw sinners to himself and save them by his grace. God's saving grace is something that cannot be earned through personal merit or good works. Consider the following excerpts from Augustine's writing that highlight the theme of God's grace and mercy. So now we're going back to the workbook. First bullet point there. Sinners are not justified on the basis of their own merit. They are saved by grace. 
There's two excerpts from Augustine there that we need to read. So with, if you've got your workbooks, you guys who brought them are going to get a lot of action now. Uh, Hannah's going to take the first one. Who wants to take the second bullet point there from Augustine? Ellie, take that for us, please. Thank you. Very good. Now, really quick, before Ellie, actually, no, Ellie, you read that, then I want somebody to read a Romans 11.6. So who wants to read Romans 11.6? Um, Emma, your hand went up first. So Ellie, read that quote from Augustine, and then Romans 11.6 to kind of provide a biblical framework for what Augustine's saying here. Very good. Very good. Thank you, Emma. So, um, and, and in Romans eleven six, in context, Paul is talking about the the salvation of. Jews, how does how does the gospel relate to the nation of Israel, who by and large has rejected Christ as their Messiah? And Romans eleven particularly is going to get into those weeds, although Romans nine does as well. Um, so in Romans eleven six, Paul is saying, "If it, but if it, it referring to God saving." Um, Jews, and by extension, you could make a broader application to salvation as a whole. But if salvation is by grace, Paul says, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So if you can be saved by any contribution of your own, if you can be saved by good works, Paul says that you can't say that you're saved by grace. You cannot say that salvation is grace if works are involved with it. Because grace by definition is what? Do you all remember what grace is? Getting what you don't deserve, deserve, right? You're receiving a gift that you didn't merit, earn, or deserve. That's salvation. So by definition, if we're going to say that salvation is a gift of God's grace, there can't be any human works. That's what Paul's arguing there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Romans eleven six. Now, bullet point two. Old Testament saints, and this is Augustine here, Old Testament saints likewise were not saved on the basis of their good works, but rather through faith in Christ. That's the blank there. Bullet point two is faith in Christ. Question now, and this is going to be hard, especially for some of you who went to prom. I think only one of y'all did, but, uh, oh, did you go to prom, Charlie? Okay, so yeah, y'all are really going to have to put your thinking caps on now. How could Old Testament saints be saved through faith in Christ if Christ had not yet come? Now, some people, in seeking to answer that question, will say, well, there's a different way of salvation in the Old Testament. They, they were saved through offering sacrifices or through good works. Lisa. 
promises, and they had faith in God to complete those promises in the coming Messiah. They don't know when the coming Messiah was coming, they just knew God said he was going to make a promise, and, and they had faith and they trusted in him that that promise would come true, even if it wasn't in their lifetime. Man, oh man, guys, I played out how I was going to respond to this, and that was better than anything I could have said. You want to teach? No, uh, no. <laughs> uh, it says Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Abraham exercised faith in the promise of God. Um, as Lisa said, you see this packet here, guys, just to illustrate the point Lisa made. I'll, I'll come in now. You see this guy? This is just a list of explicit. Old Testament prophecies and promises about Christ as fulfilled in the New Testament. This doesn't even get into the implicit. There's how many pages did I print? One, two, three, basically four pages. This is also, guys, just so you know, the sources from uh, John MacArthur's Biblical Doctrine, um, Systematic Theology textbook. But if you guys ever get bored or need a Bible study, go through this. Starting in Genesis 3.15, all the way through the Old Testament. Promise after promise, prophecy after prophecy. If I can use a technical term, type after type. That just means picture. Picture after picture. Um, They're all throughout the Old Testament. And as we know from the testimony of Abraham, as we know from the testimony of Paul in Romans 1, 1 through 6, that gospel has been promised throughout the line of Old Testament history and sinners at all, every point. They would believe God was going to fulfill those promises and the substance of the promise, the substance of the picture, was Christ. They didn't see Christ. They didn't see it all clearly. But they knew that God was going to provide the once-for-all sacrifice, the once-for-all provision that they needed to have their sins forgiven and to have a saving relationship with God. And again, the substance, the fulfillment, was the person of Christ. So that they looked ahead, they were justified, they were declared righteous through faith. Think of it this way. Just as we look back to Christ and what He did at the cross, they looked ahead to what He did at the cross. That's how you make sense of it. We are saved through faith and looking back at what Christ accomplished in the same way that those Old Testament saints would look forward in faith. To what Christ would accomplish. We just see more clearly. It's like, that's kind of crazy to think about because I feel like, I mean, like clearly they had a very, the same faith, but they, they experienced it so much differently. Mm-hmm. Like, that sounds incredibly hard, but faith is not of ourselves. Yeah. Well, let me say it like this, Hannah. If you think about the parable with the rich man and Lazarus. Just read this. I love this. It's one of my favorite parables in the entire New Testament. For the sake of the listener, I'm going to pull it up. Luke 16. The parable starts in verse 19, goes down to the end of the chapter in verse 31. And you have the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is in heaven. And um, the rich man, he is in Hades. And he's communicating with Abraham in the parable. And he's saying... Father Abraham, send Lazarus back to warn my brothers, my family, so they don't end up here. And Abraham says, and Christ is, of course, it's a parable, so we don't know this literally actually happened, but the point is the same. 
Christ says, speaking on behalf of Abraham in the parable, they've got the scriptures. Let them hear the scriptures. And he says, no, 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 wait a second. You don't understand. Go and send them. They'll believe if somebody was risen from the dead. They'll believe then. Give them a miracle. Give them a sign. They'll know then. They'll believe. And you know what Jesus says in the parable? He says, verse 31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, if they don't listen to the Old Testament, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And then what what do we find that happens? Matthew 28, Jesus lives out this parable. Matthew 28, verse 16, he meets with the disciples in Galilee. And then verse 17, they see him. He's risen from the dead right in front of them. They worshiped him, but some were doubtful. They literally fulfilled what Jesus talks about in that parable. And my friends, just by way of parenthesis, there is no amount of evidence. There's no amount of proof. There's no amount of reasoning that you could ever give to a non-believer who will not hear the testimony of God's word. It won't matter. It will not matter. God's word is the power to salvation, Romans 10, 17. It's also sufficient to bear witness to God, Christ, the gospel, any number of spiritual realities. So guys, like those Old Testament saints that believed, many of their surrounding counterparts, think of the nation of Israel. Many of the people in Israel were unbelievers. They were in the old covenant. They were God's covenant people, but they weren't saved. The wilderness wanderings had to kill off an entire generation of unbelievers. Paul says in Romans 9, 6, not all Israel were Israel. That is to say, not all people who identified as God's people were God's people. So you could have all these promises, all these blessings, all of the spiritual truth at your disposal, and yet all that evidence isn't good enough if you're not willing to submit to the authority of God's word whether it be in promise form in the case of the Old Testament or in the case of us looking back in the New Covenant, that of which has already been fulfilled. To to Anna's point, it is hard to think about Old Testament saints not seeing things clearly. But the final analysis, it is kind of the same situation we're in because it's been 2,000 years. We're not there. We can't see Christ. We can't touch Him. We, We didn't see the miracles for ourselves. We didn't know Paul, Peter, James, or John and the others, but we have the Word. That is our authority. And if you're not willing to hear the Scripture, it's not going to make any difference. Samantha. If your environment can save you, if hearing His words can save you, if seeing miracles can save you, we wouldn't have had Judas. That's right. Y'all, y'all hear that? Judas had more than you and I ever had in the sense that he was there. We have more than Judas had in the sense we have the New Testament. But in the sense of him being present with Christ, seeing miracles, uh, hearing just incredible teaching. Imagine sitting there listening to Christ deliver the Sermon on the Mount. Like, he had exposure to all of that. He saw loaves of bread and fish multiplied to feed 20,000 people or more. He saw all of that and more. John says in his Gospel, things that we didn't even put in here, Christ did. Like, the whole world couldn't contain the books of data that we could record of what Christ did. Jesus had all of that, and he still betrayed Christ. So, very good, Samantha. It's a very great point on 
the, the necessity of, number one, the grace of God to be saved at all. Number two, you've got to have a willingness on the, part of our, on the part of the sinner, on the part of you and me. We've got to be willing to submit to the authority of Scripture. Otherwise, no amount of sign, evidence, or reason will be good enough for us. Okay, very quickly, um, because salvation is by grace and not by works, even the worst of sinners can be saved. Two paragraphs there. I guess it's going to be it's going to be Hannah and Ellie again. Yeah, you want to take the big one. Somebody take the second one. All right, y'all, kick, y'all, y'all knock it out of the park. Okay. But what about the person who does, who does no work? They hear of some godless sinner who has Very good. Take the next one. Very good. And that's where we're going to conclude today. Um, just this thought that there is no sinner, and, and Lisa touched on it earlier, there is no sinner too bad to be a recipient of the gospel. I'm going to read one text from Paul that um, bears witness to this reality. And then, Lord willing, next Sunday we're going to pick up right where we left off and finish the section on Augustine. At least that's going to be the plan. You know how I go. It may be another week after that. But, guys. Listen to these words from Paul, written to a pastor, to his protege, Timothy, while he's in prison in the early 60s AD. Listen to Paul. This is phenomenal. This should be an encouragement to you, especially if you have a past, whether here today or listening to the recording. If you have a past, if you feel like you're not good enough for the gospel, if you feel like you're not worthy to be saved, that you can't bear... um, or maybe I should say it like this, that you can't be the recipient of God's saving grace. This is for you. 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 16. Paul writes, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord Jesus was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. And here it is, guys. This ought to bring you to your knees in worship. It is a trustworthy statement, Paul writes, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom 
I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Guys, Paul, the same one who put Christians in prison and put them to death, the same one who blasphemed and persecuted the church, Paul says, if God through Christ Jesus can save a wretch like me, he can save anybody else. Christ can manifest his perfect patience in salvation to anybody, no matter their past, no matter their background, no matter what they've ever done. If you would trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will be redeemed. You will be God's chosen and most treasured possession. You'll be the apple of his eye. You'll be his son or daughter in Christ. That is a promise. Nobody can outsend the grace of God. Nobody is disqualified. You must come to him by faith. And if you do so, Jesus will in no wise cast you out. He will receive you as one of his own. That is where I want to leave us this morning. Whether you're um, here today and you don't know, maybe you don't know Christ, you know for a fact, hey, I'm not a believer, or maybe you just don't know. Maybe you're like, man, I think I'm saved, but I'm, I really don't know if I'm saved. If you fall into that category, find me at some point today or this week. I'd be more than happy to answer any questions you have to minister God's word to you in any way that I can. If you're listening to this recording and you have any questions about salvation, about the gospel, shoot me an email at dewey at fbcedna.org. I'd be more than happy to, to serve you in any way that I can. My prayer is that we all, listening to this message, would come to behold the glorious treasure and the glorious grace of God found through faith in Christ alone, the gospel of grace. Let us close in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are the blessed and gracious Trinity, and we praise you for that. We, we can't even begin to fathom the depths of what you've done to pull us out of the fiery pit of hell, as it were, to, to pluck us from a life of rebellion to you, to, to change our heart from a stone to a heart of flesh to bring us from spiritual death to spiritual life, God. Just things that we, we repeat and we read and we talk about, but God, do we really understand them? I don't think we ever will to the fullest extent. I don't even think we will in glory, Lord, but my prayer, and I hope this is the prayer for all of us here, is that our hearts would only grow in our love for you and our adoration of you and our desire to put you on display and our desire to share you with others. God, give us a desire to be the men and women you've called us to be. Help us to love what you love and hate what you hate. God, help us. Help us to not be ashamed, to bear the name of Christ, to live for him, even if we're the only one in our friend group or in our surrounding context that's willing, Lord. Would we be willing to stand for truth and to honor you in how we stand for truth? Like Augustine, Father, would we be willing to contend earnestly for the faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints and yet with gentleness and respect and boldness? And God, for anyone here who doesn't know you or listening to this recording, I pray, Father, that their restless heart 
would find rest in you. That even if they're satisfied temporarily and experientially in their sinful lifestyle practices, I pray, Father, you would break their hearts, bring them to the place of repentance, show them that it's only you that provides fullness of life, fullness of joy, forgiveness of sins. And God, help us to love you more as we leave this place, as we prepare to worship you. May we do so in spirit and in truth. And this week, Father, may we be your ambassadors before a watching community and world, always abounding in your work, knowing that our labor is never in vain because we work for you and not for people. We do this for your glory and not for our own praise. We love you, God, and we thank you for loving us first in Christ Jesus. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.